What has been done to rectify the damage to the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear facility six years after the disastrous meltdowns? What have been the medical impacts of the radioactive fallout that continues to be leached into the atmosphere and ocean? What would guide Japanese authorities to understate and even lie about the risks posed by the ongoing health impact? What role does Canada have in enabling the nuclear arms race? What does the rise of Donald Trump to the Oval Office and a newly inflamed Cold War mean in the midst of a still nuclear-armed Russia and America? This week, physician, author, and renowned anti-nuclear activist Helen Caldicott shares her thoughts with the Global Research News Hour about the nuclear industry and its impacts six years after the greatest nuclear disaster of all time. On this week's program, Fukushima, Trump, and the prospects for humanity. A conversation with Helen Caldicott. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 10th, 2017. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe territory on the homeland of the Métis Nation. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Reporting the situation in Mosul, the Western media prefer not to cover the problems of the local population, who are forced to flee the war and keep silent about the deaths of civilians from the hands of terrorists. When the city of Aleppo was liberated in the end of last year, the situation was completely different. Although the local citizens were leaving their homes via humanitarian corridors organized by the Syrian military, the media dubbed the situation as a humanitarian catastrophe and blamed the Syrian president Bashar Assad. Hence, a question arises. What hindered the Iraqi authorities and the international coalition from organizing humanitarian pauses for withdrawal of civilians from the besieged city, similarly to what the Syrian government had done? It seems that the Western countries remain indifferent to the destiny of the civilians of Mosul, who have to hide in basements, hoping that they won't be found by terrorists or be mistakenly bombed by the U.S. jets. That comes from the article, Civilians in Iraq die by mistake as a result of U.S. air raids, humanitarian catastrophe in Mosul, by Firas Samuri, posted March 9th. Turkey and its people have the resources, creativity, and institutions to make Turkey a significant power. Erdogan, who demonstrated an uncanny ability to harness his country's natural and human resources, could have made Turkey such a power on the global stage. Indeed, he would have been the Ataturk of the new era had he simply continued with his historic reforms while protecting the rights of every individual and creating a real model of Islamic democracy. 
The collapse of the Ottoman Empire was largely precipitated, among other things, by its internal political decadence, the arbitrary exercising of power and gross violations of human rights that dramatically eroded the foundation on which the empire was built. In whichever form Erdogan wants to resurrect the Ottoman Empire, he will fail because no country can survive, let alone become great, as long as the government walks on the backs of the people and stifles their freedom to act, speak, and dream. That comes from the article, Erdogan, the Sultan of an Illusionary Ottoman Empire, by Dr. Alon Ben-Mir, posted March 9th. For Washington and Ottawa, the Ukraine is a proxy to weaken Russia, which blocked Western plans to topple the Assad regime in Syria. As part of this campaign, 1,000 Canadian military personnel, a naval vessel, and fighter jets will soon be on Russia's border. Where will this lead? A new Cold War against capitalist Russia? Or a much hotter war involving direct confrontation between Canadian and Russian troops? That comes from the article, Why is the Trudeau government escalating its belligerence towards Russia? By Eve Engler, posted March 9th. The role of Shirley Graham Du Bois and Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois in Ghana was indicative of the political character of the CPP government from the period of tactical action, 1951 to 56, to independence, 1957 to 66. Hundreds of African Americans either visited or settled in Ghana during this time period, many of whom making technical and political contributions to the African Revolution, which was centered in Accra. Since the 1960s, the work of the Du Boises has gained attention among many students, intellectuals, and activists in the U.S. and internationally. Nevertheless, the political significance of their contributions remains highly obscured due to the continuing institutionally racist and anti-communist social atmosphere which prevails in colleges and universities in America. The current generation of activists and intellectuals must unearth and review these monumental achievements in order to gain clear insight into the actual political, social, and economic history of the U.S. That comes from the article, Anti-Imperialism, Pan-Africanism, and Nakumra's Ghana, The Historic Role of Shirley Graham Du Bois, by Abayomi Azikiwe, posted March 9th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Dr. Helen Caldicott is the founding president of Physicians for Social Responsibility and a legendary crusader against the nuclear power and weapons industries. She was named one of Smithsonian Institute's most influential women of the 20th century. She's president of the Helen Caldicott Foundation, which informs the public of the dangers of nuclear power and nuclear war. She's authored or edited several books, including Nuclear Madness, What You Can Do in 1979, If You Love This Planet, A Plan to Heal the Earth in 1992, The New Nuclear Danger, George W. Bush's Military-Industrial Complex in 2001, and her latest 
crisis without end, the medical and ecological consequences of the Fukushima nuclear catastrophe. She joins us now from Australia. Um, so uh, thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Caldicott. That's a pleasure, Michael. Okay, um, I'm wondering if uh, I, I feel inclined to start with some of the, the most recent news uh, that, that's come out. Just in the last month, there was a discovery of uh, uh, the highest ever radiation levels uh, registered, uh, 530 sieverts uh, from uh, the uh, core of uh, Unit 2. And uh, there was also a, a metal grate uh, underneath the main vessel that had a two-meter hole in it. I, I was wondering if you could maybe just enlighten us on what we should uh, draw and what we should not draw from that, uh, that finding that was reported uh, last month. Okay, well, it only means that the robot got closer than ever before to the molten nuclear core if it had got any closer, it would have measured higher readings than that. Um, the readings are so high that if a man uh, stood at that level of radiation near the core, he'd die very quickly, within minutes. Mm. Um, but it didn't actually reach the core, so it means there are, you know, it's much higher where the core is, number one. Number two... Yes, there's a hole in the grate and almost certainly the core melted through the um, concrete floor as well as the metal grate um, into the earth. That's where we think that molten core of about 100 tonnes of seethingly hot uranium with all its uh, fission products, etc. is. Um, the robot itself um, was destroyed at those radiation readings, so it's unlikely they'll ever get another robot nearer to the core. Uh, so the readings haven't gone up. All it means is that we've been able to access the core more closely than ever before. Okay. So it's it's not a spike. I mean, it's likely it's just been that high all along for the last correct. six years. Absolutely correct. But it indicates uh, what an extraordinary situation we have where there are three molten cores uh, that have melted their way through the reactor container vessels almost certainly and into the earth and they're being washed over by huge amounts of water all the time consistently and about three to four hundred tons of radioactive water has poured into the Pacific Ocean every day since the accident six years ago. Um, the fact is that they, I predict, and from talking to nuclear engineers reading the literature, that they will never be able to get those cores back, um, remediate them or decommission the reactors and that this will remain in perpetuity um, polluting the Pacific Ocean forevermore, number one. Number two, if there's an earthquake greater than seven on the Richter scale, building two we know has been damaged and destabilised by the earthquake, the robots saw that, um, but the other buildings are also damaged. And if there was an earthquake greater than seven on the Richter scale, one or two of those buildings could collapse onto the molten cores, producing maybe a, a fire, nuclear fire, I don't know, uh, but certainly spreading huge amounts of radiation into the atmosphere, uh, making maybe parts of Japan or all of it 
uninhabitable and producing tremendous danger for the northern hemisphere as the cloud wafts from east from west to east around the northern hemisphere also there are over a thousand huge huge tanks containing extremely radioactive water which is not the water that's going to the pacific it's water that is being poured constantly into those three reactors to keep the cores cool still and it's being extracted, it's seawater, it's being extracted um, and it's very, very radioactive and it's being stored in these huge, huge tanks which are only built to last for about five years. Um, and if there's an earthquake greater than seven on the Richter scale, those, t those tanks, I don't know, all of them, some of them, few of them, could burst and release that water also into the Pacific Ocean. Number three, they're running out of room to put any more tanks as they get more and more radioactive water. And they're now saying, well, maybe the obvious solution is just to pour the water into the Pacific. Number four, they are treating some of this water to remove some of the contaminants like strontium-90 and cesium-137. But there are over 100 radioactive elements. Not all of them are being removed. And also, the, the system doesn't work very well. I don't know if they are really removing many of them. And, and what do they do with the filters, which are then contaminated, having filtered out these radioactive isotopes? And also, they can't filter out tritium, which is extremely toxic, which biomagnifies in the food chain by orders of magnitude at each step. And tritium is extremely radiotoxic and extremely carcinogenic. So we're facing a situation which is intolerable, um, irreparable really, I think. And the fifth point to make is that they're continually injecting nitrogen gas into those three reactors because hydrogen is still being formed by the zirconium cladding of the fuel rods reacting with air. Um, and as we know, we had three hydrogen explosions, or maybe four. That's what caused uh, the, the that's what caused the, the structures to uh, to weaken, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And so they're diluting the hydrogen with with nitrogen continuously to prevent another hydrogen explosion. So you know, every which way you look at the situation, it's an absolute total disaster. Hmm. So if if they stop pumping in the nitrogen uh, oxide, then it's just you, you'll, you're at risk of another, uh, probably inevitably there will be another hydrogen explosion? Well, that's what they think. Because uh -huh. you're, you're continually uh, you use, you're deliberately applying water there. Uh, but the, the water isn't just coming from what they're, they're deliberately spraying onto the core to cool it, right? No. They, they built the six reactors in front of a mountain range. Uh, the reactors are at sea level because they excavated a huge cliff so that they can put the reactors at sea level. But the mountain range is a problem because huge amounts of water washed down continuously from the mountains into the sea. Now, when the reactors were intact, the water flowed underneath the reactors into the sea and it wasn't a problem. But now, because of the, the damage that's been done and, and the fact that those three cores are now exposed, to the mountainous water that's pouring into the Pacific continuously, that water becomes intensely radioactive as it flows over and mixes with the cores and takes up many of the radioactive elements in the core and, and flows into the sea. Now, they thought, well, I'll put 
a wall of ice, and so they injected these um, refrigerated cores into the earth and tried to freeze the earth to prevent the water from flowing under the reactor cores and bypassing the reactors. But, of course, it didn't work, number one. And number two, you'd have to have a continuous supply of electricity for the rest of time to maintain the wall or it would melt. And number three, how do you generate electricity? By coal, increasing global warming, by natural gas, increasing global warming, or by nuclear power. And most of the reactors are closed down now anyway in, in uh, Japan. Now, there is a, a, a nuclear engineer who's ha had another idea, and that is to build a very substantial wall of rock, cement, um, you name it, uh, instead of the refrigeration wall. And so the water pours down from the mountains and then is bypasses the reactors on both sides, it's diverted, into pipes that flow into the Pacific. That has not been done. The Japanese are very proud, um, and they, to until recently, didn't ask for any international help from some of the, you know, the best brains in the world dealing with this situation, um, and they're now reaching out to ask for some help. I don't know if that wall would solve anything, but it's the it's one solution that has been suggested that might possibly help the situation. Hmm. Uh, what about going back to the reactors? Um, there's also the uh, the spent fuel pools. That's the repositories where uh, all of the, uh, the 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 expired fuel is put, and, and it's all also uh, on a high, like above the uh, well above the ground. Uh, it's uh, in in these special reactors, and it's uh, it's still quite radioactive. But uh, they don't have that coolant. Uh, they're not able to keep them cool. And so I'm wondering... Well, that's a good point, Michael. Um, and I don't remember exactly how many spent fuel assemblies are in each pool. The pool is um, about 10 stories above ground level, high on the roof of those, reactor, those damaged reactors. Number four, all the rods were removed from the... The, that fuel pool. So that has no rods and it has no radiation in, in the core. That's all being taken out. But one, two, and three still have an enormous amounts of highly radioactive spent fuel in their pools. And so, of course, they would collapse too if there were another earthquake which caused the building to collapse. Yes, they could burn um, if exposed to air. Yes, they have to be continually cooled with water. Um, <laughs> And, you know, they need four to 6,000 bodies per day, every day, to maintain an element of, of safety and piping and all sorts of things. And they're running out of warm bodies. The Yakuza, who is the Japanese mafia, has always been associated with the nuclear industry in Japan, apparently, and they're recruiting um, homeless people from the streets in Tokyo, etc., mentally deranged people, alcoholics, addicts, you name it, to get more humans there to work the system. Well, the other thing is that those people who go there, many of them are getting really high doses of radiation, and then, of course, they have to be dismissed. I don't think they're looked after. Some have all develop, already developed cancers and also leukemia. 
as a result of the radiation, but that's going to happen more and more and more. And you know that they're going to run out of people to maintain any sort of um, normality, if one can use that word, um, at, that, at that very, very dangerous reactor um, um, plant. That's a bit... I don't think too many people are aware of that. That the uh, the moth the Japanese mafia is is pulling people off the streets, like homeless people, people drug addicted, and so on. What what are those people doing on the site? I mean, you would think they probably well, wouldn't. Well, they put them up and they put them in their radiation protective suits, which don't protect them. The only thing that can stop gamma radiation and neutron radiation entering the body is lead. And in fact, lead doesn't stop neutrons. And there are um, focuses of or neutrons at certain areas in that reactor complex um, but they're not being I mean their suits are made of paper and, and plastic it, the radiation just goes straight through them they look okay but they're not they've got respirators some of them although it, it gets too hot sometimes to wear the respirators because there is radiation in the air to be inhaled the other important thing to note is that the medical profession um, has allied with the International Atomic Energy Agency in Fukushima and at the Fukushima Hospital they've built a new cancer hospital which really tells you everything. They are only looking for thyroid cancer. Now when Chernobyl occurred, thyroid cancer started appearing two years after the accident and they're still occurring now. Uh, leukemia tends to start occurring, which is cancer of the white blood cells, five to ten years after being exposed to radiation. And solid cancers don't start appearing generally until 15 years later. And their incubation time is anything from, you know, two to 80 years. And, and you don't know when the cancer develops, whether it was caused by radiation or not. The only way to determine that is to take the exposed population um, epidemiologically and measure the numbers of cancers and compare them to a non-exposed population. However, they've already been looking at thyroids of children who were under the age of 18 at the time of the accident and they've found about 172 or maybe it's 183 thyroid cancers in, this, in these children. They haven't looked at all of them yet. Um, some of these cancers have metastasized to lymph glands, the lung, etc. The normal incidence in that population of children under the age of 18 is one or two per million. So we're seeing a huge spike in thyroid cancer, which, which is an indicator that we will soon be seeing a huge spike in leukemia and other cancers. Remember that children are 10 to 20 times more radiosensitive than adults little girls twice as sensitive as little boys, fetuses thousands of times more so, women are twice as sensitive as men for some reason that we don't understand. But it indicates that it's the tip of the iceberg and that we will be seeing many, many more cancers over time. However, the, ja the Japanese medical system such as it is, is not looking at any other cancers. Um, and the doctors have been told not to tell their patients that their symptoms, whether it's nose bleeding or loss of hair or whatever, could be related to radiation. And if they do, they, 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 the government stops paying them. The uh, Prime Minister, 
Abe um, has passed a law to say that any reporters that report honest report honesty on the situation could be jailed for ten years. So there's a huge, huge, massive cover up, and they call it the nuclear village in Japan. TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power Company, um, and Toshiba. Um, really are one and the same with the Japanese government. So the government is passing laws to protect the nuclear industry, not to protect the people. And this is an absolute medical catastrophe, if you will. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, there are um, a number of uh, different uh, agents by which uh, radiation is, is coming in touch with the people. I guess one would be with through, through the air, the atmosphere, what's been vented out of the facilities, what's going through the into the water, and also uh, presumably through the uh, things that people ingest. You know, I, what, what, would, what, what would be the, the primary agent for people living okay. Well, there are many ways radiation can enter the body. Um, First, when the meltdown occurred, meltdowns, the very, very short-lived isotopes that only last seconds are very high gamma radiation emitters. Gamma radiation is like x-rays. It goes straight through your body. You don't become radioactive when you've been exposed to gamma radiation like you don't become radioactive when you're exposed to x-rays. But in the instant that you are exposed, um, regulatory genes can be mutated in cells and later the cell might divide uncontrollably and that's a cancer. Um, Fukushima Prefecture is a very fertile area and it grows wonderful food, peaches and plums and rice and all sorts of stuff and and milk and cattle farms and the like. Uh, most of the Fukushima prefecture is quite highly contaminated, especially the dams and the rivers and the creeks, because the water flies down from the mountains and brings with it radioactive contaminants which get into the water. Um, the rice is contaminated, much of it, and so they're diluting it with, with uncontaminated rice. The solution to pollution by dilution when it comes to radiation is fallacious because the radioactive elements reconcentrate back in the body. They're looking mostly only at cesium-137 and 134. Cesium is a potassium analogue and it, it resembles potassium in the body. The body thinks it's potassium. Uh, potassium is, is highly concentrated in all cells of the body, but particularly cesium tends to go to the endocrine glands, thyroid, pancreas, um, adrenals and the like, um, and to cardiac muscle. And we've noted that in the Chernobyl survivors, um, quite a lot of people are having sudden heart attacks, including children, because of the radiation in the cardiac muscle. Cesium-137, its half-life is uh, 30, 28 years, I think that's right. Cesium-134, which is more radioactive, its half-life is about 2.5 years. You multiply a half-life by 10 to get its total radiological life. Um, So cesium can cause brain tumours and cancers of the endocrine glands, including thyroid heart attacks and ovarian cancer and the like. Then there's strontium-90, which is a calcium analogue. Its half-life is 28 years. Cesium-137, sorry, is about 30 years. 
So strontium-90 concentrates in bone where it can irradiate cells to induce leukemia, cancer of the white blood cells that are made in the bone marrow and also bone cancer. Um, and it concentrates in milk, of course, and cesium concentrates, you know, hundreds of times at each step of the food chain. For instance, in the sea, in the algae, then in the crustaceans, then the little fish, then the big fish, then us. And we stand at the apex of the food chain, and these elements concentrate most highly in us. Yeah, you're talking um, about biomagnification, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. That's whole, yeah, of course, where yes. people may be familiar with it, with the whole DDT issue. Or, yeah. Um, what, what I would say to people is do not, do not go to Japan. Do not, under any circumstances, take your children to Japan because you don't know what you're eating and where the food is sourced. And do not buy Japanese food. Don't buy miso, fish, rice, you name it. Do not buy and eat Japanese food because you don't know where it's coming from. And the Japanese are, are trying now to export their radioactive food to London and elsewhere. Taiwan has refused to receive it. Um, but <laughs> it's dangerous and it's going to continue to be dangerous for the rest of time. It's sad. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. You said about not going to Japan. That's where the Olympics of 2020 are taking place. And apparently the, the president had made successful um, a successful bid to hold the Olympics there, arguing that uh, they had dealt with the, uh, the Fukushima disaster. Uh, your thoughts about that? He lied. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and they're going to have some of the events near the Fukushima nuclear power plant. And those beautiful young bodies at the peak of their physical prowess are going to be exposed to radiation in the air because the reactors are still emitting radiation in the air. They're going to be exposed to radiation in the food. And also on the ground level, um, there, are areas, there are areas in Tokyo where if you collect the soil from the road or the moss on the roof or the vacuum cleaner um, dust, uh, these, these uh, bits of dirt, etc. Their, radia their, their radiation readings are so high that they would be subjected to being put into a radioactive waste dump in America. That's how high they are. And 35 million people live in Tokyo, many of them being exposed to radiation as they inhale or in their food or as they walk around. I mean, the thing is disastrous. And, and the Japanese people, I've been there twice, they're desperate to know, desperate. And even if you tell them the truth, which is very scary, they're so grateful because they want to know the truth. Yes. And could you comment on, because as I understand it, the, uh, the Japanese government is lo no longer subsidizing the evacuees who, who left. So yeah. that puts them in a very difficult uh, situation. You either you know, come back and uh, face these hazards that, that you see, and apparently the government doesn't, or they... Uh, sink or swim on their own uh, for wherever they are. Yeah, well, that's right. That's what's happening. They're, they're removing the money for them to live outside the contaminated area. I mean, it's really evil what is happening, really evil. 
Well, I was just going to ask, what are the incentives for the government to, to, I guess, is it willful blindness? Is this just, uh, we don't care how many people are going to die? Or what, what would be They're the incentive? Sweeping, sweeping the problem under the carpet, so to speak. They don't care, obviously, how many people are going to die. They don't even want to know about it. And they're pretending everything's normal so that they can get the nuclear industry up and running again. That's what it's about. And Japan is a very big player in the nuclear industry. Toshiba uh, and, and other Mitsubishi and other huge corporations make parts for nuclear reactors and export them all over the world to Saudi Arabia and to all sorts of places, including the containment vessel of, of, of reactors. Um, and so they want to keep their export industry going. It's just to prop up the money. And the men, I don't think the men really care whether people live or die. Mm. It's a funny autocratic society where, you know, people who are at the top maintain the power. Uh, it's an interesting society. But, you know, America's just as bad. And Canada, you live in a place where you export uranium all over the world. So do we in Australia. Your can-do reactors make very, very pure plutonium. They are huge emitters of tritium into the air and water. Uh, surveys have shown that children under the age of five who live within five kilometres of a reactor have double the incidence of leukaemia, probably from tritium and carbon-14 that's, that's extruded from the reactors, and they have a high incidence of solid cancers. Um, you are really guilty that your uranium fueled the first nuclear weapons in the world, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, you've exported your reactors all over the world so people can make nuclear weapons from them, including India and Pakistan and the like. You are guilty as hell. And Cameco in, in Canada <laughs> should be hung, dried and quartered. I mean, you need to close your industry down. And also the uranium is mined in places where there are indigenous people, so it contaminates their food, their livestock, their lives. They die of cancer and leukemia. And there's very little um, publicity about what's going on in the nuclear industry in Canada. Yeah, or, like, or in uh, the world, uh, for that matter, it seems to me. Well, yeah, but I'm focusing now on Canada. Fair enough. <laughs> And your new prime minister should be doing something about it. I actually met with Pierre Trudeau for an hour and a quarter over lunch in mm -hmm. his prime ministerial res residence. And after that conversation, he led the campaign for a five-continent, six-nation peace initiative. He was wonderful. Um, and his son, I'm sure, could walk in his father's footsteps in the nuclear area. Hmm. Yeah, well, it does seem as if the uh, the, the, the liberal government of uh, Justin Trudeau is uh, quite friendly, or, or seeking to be quite friendly with the uh, with the uh, the nuclear industry. And so, I mean, yes. so I, it does. Well, therefore, you need to get onto his back. Okay. He's got young children who he loves. I mm -hmm. got to Pierre Trudeau through his children, who he absolutely adored. Um, I won't go into the whole interview, but if you read my book. Um, a desperate passion, I describe the whole interview there with Trudeau. Um, and also my film, If You Love This Planet, you know, was made by the Canadian Film Board and won an Oscar for the best documentary. Yes, so National Film Board. Played <laughs> a big role in this, yes. For sure. 
Um, I, I wanted you to uh, to, to comment uh, on the, uh, the the responsibleness of. Uh, I mean, you've got the the the, the, the nuclear the regulatory authorities, both within Japan and internationally, as well as the World Health Association, you know, the International Atomic Energy Agency. Uh, you know, given the the urgency that that you and and Arnie Gunderson and others have been uh, putting out there to to try to get this message out, to, how would you evaluate the way they have responded to this clear and present danger and in, in their actions and their well, the nuclear regulators are only about one thing, and that's to keep the industry going. They're businessmen; they don't really care about health, and they obfuscate and cover up investigations and don't investigate you know the the nuclear industry is a carcinogenic industry they're cancer factories those nuclear power plants and if there's a war and a missile hits a nuclear power plant it could contaminate oh no if if a one megaton bomb hits a nuclear power plant it could contaminate an area the size of west germany i think Mm -hmm. or pennsylvania i can't remember which one but you know, you can't have a war in country where there are nuclear reactors, although there are 15 in in the Ukraine, including Chernobyl, and there's a war going on there. So that's very, very dangerous. Mm. Um, the International Atomic Energy Agency in 19, I think it was 58, um, got the WHO World Health Organization to sign an agreement that WHO would not investigate any nuclear accident from a health perspective, unless it got permission from the IAEA. So they're hung, drawn and quartered. They're totally compromised. They've sold their soul, WHO, to like Faust, to the devil. Hmm. So, you know, we work so hard to, to try and save patients with cancer. My specialty is cystic fibrosis, the most common fatal genetic disease of childhood. There are over 2,600 such diseases. Um, and what, what the nuclear waste will do is contaminate food chains, water supplies, human bodies, fetuses for the rest of time. Mm. And what we're doing is producing a derogatory effect upon the positive process of evolution, let alone inducing epidemics of cancer, leukemia, genetic disease and deformed babies for the rest of time. Not forgetting that we are not the only ones with genes. All plants and animals have genes and all can be, be mutated by radiation. It's an evil, wicked, malicious industry that kills people slowly over time. I think another important point that uh, to inform our listeners about is I, I think it's called teratogenesis, this idea that, yes. you know, e you know, Future generations are impacted by by what happens to you know people who are exposed today. Even if they move to some area that's radiation free, the impacts will multiply over time. Right? Okay. So teratogenesis means damage to the fetus in the first trimester. Okay. In the first three months of intrauterine life, the fetus develops all its organs, its limbs, and the like. After that, it just grows in size. Um, now, the placenta lets nothing through, really. It's very protective of the fetus. Viruses, etc., just don't get through. But, for instance, plutonium, which is so toxic that a millionth of a gram can give you lung cancer, um, it is 
an iron analog. So the body thinks it's iron. So it combines plutonium with transferrin, which is the iron transporting protein of the body. And plutonium actually crosses a placenta. And it behaves like the drug thalidomide. It will kill a cell that's going to form the left half of the brain or the eye or the right arm. And that's what happened when pregnant women took thalidomide to prevent morning sickness. Their babies were born without arms or legs or the like. It was dreadful. Now, there are hundreds of homes near Chernobyl full of the most damaged, deformed children. And we have never seen this in the history of paediatrics, and I'm a paediatrician. Um, it's, it's really dreadful. Uh, if you go to the... New York Academy of Sciences, you can get a book from them called Chernobyl where there are photographs of these very, very deformed children. Um, and so, therefore, pregnant women who are exposed to radiation in the first trimester uh, are, are likely to have deformed babies. It's kind of like the Zika virus, only that damages the brain. That's a dreadful thing too. That's a teratogenic virus. Oh. Now, the, the other thing to note is, of course, uh, mutations in the eggs and sperm in the gonads. Um, and so every person carries several hundred genes for disease. For instance, I'm a carrier for hemochromatosis, which is a recessive gene, and my ex-husband has it too, and so our eldest son, Philip, has hemochromatosis. It's, it's rare. It only gets expressed if there are two genes together, like you can't have blue eyes unless you have two blue-eyed genes. If you have a brown-eyed gene and a blue-eyed gene, you're going to have brown eyes. Now, we all carry several hundred genes for disease, um, and that's because the genes in the eggs and sperm have been mutated over time. And we carry these genes for disease, and you don't know you carry them unless you mate with someone with the same abnormal gene. Well, increasing radiation in the environment for the rest of time is going to increase the number uh, and incidence of these very, very bad genetic diseases um, in both plants, animals, and humans. So we're degrading the positive process of evolution. Maybe you could address, first of all, the, the connections between the civilian applications of the nuclear industry and the military applications of the uh, the industry, because I think maybe some, like going back to Canada, we, we maybe because we don't have nuclear weapons, uh, and we but we do contribute extensively with the, the you know export of uranium, as you mentioned. Um, can you make a, a strict division between the, the civilian industry and the military industry? Like, I'm okay with you know, civilian applications of nuclear, but uh, we're, we're not going to support nuclear. I mean, does that, fill, does that figure into the, uh, this uh, drive for, uh, and power of the industry? No. It's the one and the same industry. There was a, a psychologist in the Pentagon in 1956 who, who, who suggested that America should get into the peaceful atom, so-called, 
um, which would then help to avert the allergic response that Americans had to nuclear weapons. And that's really how it started. Um, but you make nuclear weapons by putting uranium in reactors and generating plutonium. You need five kilos to make yourself a bomb. Each reactor makes 250 kilos of it a year. Its half-life is 24,400 years. It lasts virtually for the rest of time. A millionth of a gram is carcinogenic. Uh, so you are you supplied uranium for the whole of the uh, American nuclear weapons program at Port Hope, and I've been there. Port Hope is built on uranium tailings um, and and radioactive waste. It's revolting. They've got a huge plant at Cameco, which um, turns uranium into uranium hexafluoride which is then sent down as a gas to America to be enriched to to 3% uranium-235 to be put in reactors. So you're an integral part of the whole process for bombs and nuclear power. So nuclear power plants are bomb factories and cancer factories. There's no dis difference, no discrimination. Um, and now they're going to spend in America over a trillion dollars in the next 30 years, replacing every single nuclear weapon, missile, ship, airplane, aircraft carrier, you name it. Modernising, they call it. I mean, I'm I'm really pessimistic now that we're going to survive. Mm. You've said that uh, you, you might consider evacuating your family from Boston, uh, depending Well, yeah, if there's another uh, accident at Fukushima and it's really bad, and the northern hemisphere becomes heavily contaminated, I'm going to get them out of Boston and bring them down to Australia. Mm -hmm. If it's a nuclear war, we're all going to die anyway, and I'm sitting here looking at my beautiful garden full of flowers, and that, that's going to go. And with the madman in the White House, who loves generals and has appointed generals to all his top positions in his administration, you know, I really, and he's the only one in America who... Um, can press the button, and he has a three-minute decision time. He's impulsive, narcissistic, uh, lies, cheats. Who knows if we're going to make it? I, Michael, I, it's very grim at the moment. I, it's worse than when Reagan was in office. Yeah. Well, speaking about what's worse than when Reagan was in office, I mean, may, maybe your memories are different, but I'm hearing a lot of antagonism toward Russia these days. And I, I mean, there was antagonism in the 80s, but it seems like it's even higher today. Does this seem like we're, we're back in that Cold War era and that, uh, you know, we're, 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 yes. we're increasing that? Yes. yes. Well, what, what's happened is that I think the Democrats' terrible loss in the election, they're trying to blame the Russians so that they don't realize that they should have put Bernie Sanders in instead of Hillary Clinton. He would have beaten Donald Trump. Um, so there's a huge push by the New York Times, Washington Post and major media in America to uh, indemnify Russia, not indemnify, but to make Russia look wicked. Now, the, the situation in the Ukraine is such that the State Department with Victoria Newland and Robert Kagan and the neocons orchestrated the coup in the Ukraine. Um, the Russian, many, about 40% of the people in the Ukraine are Russian speaking and they're in the East. And they, um, they wanted to 
they didn't want well well America put a, a real Nazi in as as the head Poroshenko who's also corrupt and he wants everyone to speak Ukrainian and the people in the east who were very closely allied with Russia didn't want to join this whole thing and and he's you know cutting out their pensions and healthcare and stuff so Putin sent some troops in to support those Russians, number one. Number two, the Crimea, um, they had a referendum in the Crimea and 96% of the Crimeans voted to stay under the Russian orbit. Um, and what, what, and, and number three, they have enlarged NATO, which is really America, um, right up to the borders of Russia. It's like the Warsaw Pact has come in and is, is right along the border of Mexico with America. I mean, America would go burko and probably block the world like it nearly did with the Cuban Missile Crisis. So that it's, it's an artifice constructed by the military-industrial complex in America who want to keep Russia as a Cold War enemy um, and by the deep state um, the politicians and the CIA and the FBI and all the rest. Uh, but if you listen to Putin's speeches, and he has long, long press conferences, they're very balanced. <laughs> mm -hmm. They're very sane. And he's saying, well, we want to be friends with you. Let's be friends. And, and also they want to get rid of their nuclear weapons. And on that note, there is a, um, a, a very important thing happening in the United Nations this year where a hundred and uh, 23 nations have come together in an effort to outlaw nuclear weapons, like we've outlawed landmines and chemical weapons and the like. The countries that are avoiding it and, and are averse to it, of course, are America, Russia, because if America doesn't do the right thing, Russia won't, and of course all the other nuclear nations. So we're between a rock and a hard place, and I, I th I'm not sure about Canada, I think, I don't know if you support that resolution or not, but it's imperative that Canada does. Mm. So, well, we've got, looking at uh, Trump's cabinet, you know, you've got Mike Pence as vice president. You've got uh, the energy secretary, Governor Rick Perry, uh, Rick Tillerson, uh, who's an ex-Enron, and all the generals that you mentioned, including someone named Mad Dog Mattis. So, uh, yeah, if, if they say structure is strategy in slow motion, uh, but, uh, how do things look uh, going forward? Very grim. I mean, if, if Trump gets impeached, we're going to have Pence, who is a, I mean, he looks more sane than Trump, but he's revoltingly right-wing and very dangerous. Mm. Tillerson, um, yeah, he orchestrated all the Exxon stuff, and I think he owns lots of oil and... Russia and stuff, at least he's friendly with Russia, and that's important. Um, but I don't know much how much power he has. Bannon, who's really mad, loves war, has been a historian uh, on war for nearly all his life, and he's probably tickled pink that many of the people in the administration are generals who like war. Um, mad Dog Mattis, uh, I think he's the one who's who'd like to blow up Iran. I'm not sure, but that's just crazy stuff. Iran has no nuclear weapons. That's just running Israel's line. Um, <laughs> we're in the hands of really, really, 
really dangerous people. And as Bannon said quite openly the other day, that they've appointed people in all the departments, EPA and health and and you name it, who want to dismantle State Department. They want to dismantle all the, all the departments and all the laws that people have worked so hard to produce over hundreds of years in America. That, I mean, it's like the worst nightmare you can imagine. And every day I think, well, I'll wake up and it won't really be happening. But every day it gets worse. Mm. Yeah, there's... I. I anticipate that uh, what's what's happening here and with, with Trump and and at large, I mean, with Japan, Tepco, and all that, the the the, the specter of being able to make a profit and and hold on yes, to your profits funny. is overcoming the uh, rational decisions to uh, keep uh, you know to, to to put off a, a danger. It's like people are just uh, inattentive to the uh, these hazards that are out there. Maybe they're just crossing their fingers and hoping nothing will happen. There's just too much money to be made to be concerned about the health of our children. Apparently, um, so well, the survival I, of our children. <laughs> Or, or all, I've, all. Got a book, I've got a book coming out in uh, June, July, called Sleepwalking to Armageddon. It is the proceedings of a symposium I had two years ago at the New York Academy of Medicine um, about the imminent threat of nuclear war. And, you know, I've got Chomsky and all sorts of really wonderful people who've written articles. Um, it's published by the New Press, and I'd advise you to get that if you possibly can sleepwalking to armageddon july okay um and with michael i think i probably need to end okay can i just ask you one more question before we go yes okay Uh, we're having this conversation on international women's day and i guess i was wondering if there's uh if if somehow the, the the consciousness of international women's day can be used to somehow uh work on this imperative of of mitigating this uh clear uh nuclear threat it's an excellent question, Michael. Um, I'm writing a book called Why Men Kill and Why Women Let Them. 52% of the world's population are women. The way they're treated by the Muslims, having to cover up everything is obscene. The Catholic Church, the way they treat women is obscene. I thought I'd become a Buddhist, but they're very patriarchal too. Um it's time women took over. Men have made a terrible, terrible mess of things. Uh, and we've got the hormones oxytocin and estrogen and progesterone, which are nurturing hormones. We need to step into our power and stop being wimps and saying, look, you blokes, have, you've had your time. You've mucked up. We're on the brink of extinction and we're taking over now. And that takes after the myth in... Greek mythology, Lysistrata, where the men kept fighting and killing and fighting and killing. Finally, the women said, okay, no more sex. And they stopped. And that happened in Liberia too, I think, recently, where the women said, okay, no more sex. And the men, why do men need sex so badly, number one? And number two, probably when they stop fighting and killing, they get their sex back and they'll start fighting and killing again. Mm-hmm. I really, it's a conundrum, Michael, but it's time we rose to our full moral and spiritual power and said, okay, you know, you all need your bottom smacked. You're about to destroy life on the planet. We're taking over. Mm. Well, on that note, uh, I want to thank you very much. You've been very generous with your time today, and uh, I wish you all the best in your ongoing uh, lobbying and uh, activist efforts. 
Thank you, Michael, and the same to you. Okay, thanks so much. Goodbye. Bye-bye. We've been speaking with physician, author, and anti-nuclear advocate, Helen Caldicott. She's the author of several books on the nuclear danger, uh, including the upcoming Sleepwalking to Armageddon. You can get more details of her work by visiting the site helencaldicott.com. You're listening to the song, The Future So Bright I Gotta Wear Shades, from the band Timbuk3 from their 1986 album, Greetings from Timbuk3. And with this song, we conclude this week's installment of the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our program every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. The show can also be downloaded from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Please join us again next week for more on the Fukushima disaster and the dark side of the nuclear industry. Bye for now.